in my never. case, Samir, exactly zero members of the world and my family are asking me to do the dance. <laughs> to do the TikTok. <laughs> zero. Uh, but see, that therein inherently lies the fact that if you do do it, you will, you will blow up on TikTok. Guaranteed. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I think the reaction on TikTok would be the same. Zero. <laughs> Hi, buddy, and welcome to the Human Element, Kara's podcast on modern marketing. This is episode four of our series on race and equality in the industry. Today, we are joined by Samir Sheth, head of content at Morning Brew. Samir, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. I'm super excited, Samir. We're going to get into this, right? This Let's is, do it. Why not? <laughs> you know, what we're trying to do here is follow on from a discussion that we started a couple of weeks ago about race and equality and about how they, the industry has failed in many ways, about what we hope for the future. But before we do that, can we talk a little bit about your role? Because I'm always interested in people's personal journeys and the specific role that you occupy at Morning Brew. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, you know, after a couple year stint as a consultant, started my life. Ah, there. the dreaded consultant. <laughs> I know, I know. It feels like ages ago. It feels like another life in many ways. You've purged yourself of all of that. <laughs> I have, I have. But, you know, since then, I've spent my career uh, in, in kind of the broad advertising and media space. But at Morning Brew specifically, you know, I lead our content team across our various media franchising and products. So what that means is, you know, we have our general daily business newsletter, Morning Brew, our vertical newsletters for professionals and emerging tech, retail, and, and actually now marketing, our uh, long-form interview podcast, Business Casual, and we're also investing in a lot of new things, which is a really exciting thing. But honestly, what does that mean in practice? It's For me, it's really about setting a strategy and North Star and then empowering our incredible writers and editors and content product managers to produce great stuff that informs, surprises, and delights you know, now almost two and a half million readers uh, every amazing. day. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. I, I've you know, before this had the chance to be involved in the industry from, from multiple vantage points, I was kind of the big company digital transformation strategist for a while in the, in the music industry and then moved on and was an investor and acquirer of pub and ad tech companies at Bertelsmann and then an operator to startup and even had a brief stint trying to start my own venture fund in the media for equity space. But that's a, that's a story for another time. <laughs> so let's dive in. What have the past couple weeks been like for you professionally? And what have the conversations been like that you've been having internally around, you know, topics of representation and race and equality? The last few weeks have been incredibly challenging. I know for me personally, I'm trying to ensure that I'm being an ally, an advocate, um, not just through words, but also actions. But then as a company, we've also had a bunch of conversations about what our guiding light is and how that fits in with both our team and, and society. You know, Morning Brew's mission is to empower the modern business leader through accessible and engaging content. And up to this point, you know, we thought about fulfilling that mission through delivering great business news every day. But over the past few weeks, we've recognized that modern business leader, as we call them, has to be a well-rounded individual who's compassionate and educated about important issues that affect the fabric of our society such as systemic racism. And if we're going to actually achieve that mission, we can't honestly let the idea of business news uh, be a crutch and actually see it as an opportunity to address these issues. So we're, we're continuing to figure out the, the 
best ways that we can make sure to capture that, to integrate that into our own content. And then, you know, after that, it's been really about people, thinking about Morning Brew as a collection of humans, <laughs> really wonderful ones at that, and not just, you know, Morning Brew, the entity. And, you know, with that, that's it's maybe twofold with our current team and, and our potential future team with the current team. It's really about making sure that we proactively support and listen and give space to our colleagues who've honestly been facing these challenges and having these conversations, unfortunately, oftentimes only with themselves for many years because they haven't necessarily had the support in the space to talk about it. And then making sure that we support others who either want the time to educate themselves or just the space to be able to process or, or take action. And so, you know, it's, it's very easy sometimes to think about the, the company response, but we, you know, we have to remember that the company doesn't exist without all the people that we have and, and the people that we want to bring onto the team. And, and that means making sure that we do, we really double down on some of the actions that we've taken to build a truly diverse and representative team. Have there been, you know, sort of a, a moment or two in talking with your folks and your team that have really sort of struck you the most or been the most emotionally impactful? Have, has there been like a vignette or without, you know, obviously disclosing any confidentialities, yeah. have there been one or two moments where you're like, oh, wow? It's a good question. I think, you know, one that comes immediately to mind, I was speaking with a Black colleague of mine, and this was maybe let's say a week, week and a half after the murder of George Floyd. And of course, after many of the protests have started. And of course, those first few days for us, we were just trying to all scramble to make sure that we were responding in the appropriate way. And, and I had my weekly catch up uh, with this person. And you know, before anything, I was like, how are you? Mm. And this person said back to me, you're the first person to just ask, how are you? And I think that you had someone, someone on the podcast a few weeks ago who, who said the question of, of someone who sent them a text message and said, hey, I'm, I'm here for you if you want to talk. And I think that that, that and, and what just happened there really, really struck me that, you know, when you're talking to a colleague, especially one who, again, has been having these conversations and has been in the, in the action and unfortunately in the receiving action of many things that you may just be starting to talk about now, also just remember to ask, how are you? And that in itself, like giving that space is honestly one of the most important things to do before starting to talk about all the different things that you want to do and, and going into like solver mode or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Let me fix it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I think that's great counsel. I, I think that's something that I've, I've tried to keep in my mind too, is two things. One is, you know, everybody just arrived on their planet right? and they're sort of like, where were you yesterday Yeah, or, yep. or last week or last Christmas? Or yep. I don't remember you being here, you know, on my yep. world, 4th of July. Like, yep. and so now here we all are again, and I'm a former consultant myself. So I, you know, I come with the mentality like frame, you know, plan, action, all that kind of orientation. And there's a healthy dose of steps between arriving on their planet and, you know, attempting to, tell them how their planet works. And that's, that's not how to do it. So I've definitely, you know, I personally, I know I've sort of tripped over my own shoes for sure on that. One thing that you just mentioned, there is also an important point of, of like, where were you one week, one month, one year ago? And it's, it's a question that I've asked myself. I know and many people have asked. And, you know, what I've come to kind of terms with is that and I've tried to make sure to, to say to people is there's no better time to start than now. 
you know, we can't let, you know, create this false worry that we're being too responsive. And I think that that's held people back from acknowledging or, or pushing action through. And, and you know, it, of course, it is important to acknowledge that, you know, the things that I and we could have done in, in the past. But, but yeah, there's, there's no reason to keep that, that false kind of phrase of, oh, maybe now is not the right time. Maybe I should wait. And then waiting just never happens. And that's where we end up in a situation and place that we are today you know, 50 and 100 and 200 years after, you know, we've said that we've taken action to, to make this better. Yeah. So that's actually, believe it or not, a fantastic segue, Samir, for the next question, which is, you know, in your mind, these are not new issues. And certainly not new issues in our extended industry, be it agencies, marketing organizations, publishers, the media. What have been the key barriers in, in, in your mind that have prevented progress? Yeah, I think the the most important and obvious barrier has been in hiring an employee base. You know, if you're looking in the marketing and advertising space, you look at you know any any of the surveys. I know we just talked about some of them in in, in our own publications, and and you see that roughly seventy five or eighty percent of the advertising and marketing industry as a whole is white, and then oftentimes you know not only that, the least represented group is black or indigenous people. One hundred percent. And then if we take it a step further and we look at leadership, you know, those numbers shoot up to, to 90%. And so, you know, from there, you, you start to think about the broader point for me, you know, is, is what I'd call like the second order action. So, you know, when it's hiring, is it, is it hiring or is it hiring and promotion? Or if we look at like, let's look at the, the DEI framework, that's an easy one to mm. fall back into or talk about with diversity are you just falling back on the notion of, of diverse voices? Or as, as one of our panelists recently said, uh, Rashad Tabakawala, are you actually taking the action of hiring diverse faces and then giving those people voices in the decision-making? When you talk about the letter E, you know, are you mistakenly focusing on just equality, you know, giving people the same resources? Or are you actually taking the real meaning equity, which I would say is kind of the second order action and taking specific deliberate action to support those who have faced systemic biases to even give them the opportunity at equality. And so those second order actions are, are hard. They're not easy. They require more than, more than words, more than thoughts, but real specific action. And I think that in the context of, of all the excuses and problems that we face in publishing and advertising and marketing and, and, and challenges, some of those actions have, have taken really a backseat, except for maybe the most proactive of leaders. And hey, ironically, you know, or coincidentally, I should say that those uh, often are because the leadership teams are more diverse. So they know that they need to have those yep. conversations at the top level. Yeah, more inherent awareness. Can you share maybe one or two sort of short term and maybe an example of a long term action you guys are taking in this space that's maybe something you weren't doing, you know, three months ago? Yeah, I think the first one that's, I wouldn't call it an easy one, but it's one that we can take action. All is around tracking and incentivization. <laughs> there are a lot of metrics in our industry, a lot of ones that we, that we focus on and fall back on. But, you know, I hope that in, you know, from the last few weeks and frankly, the, over the next many months, it'll force us to not just address these points with kind of external statements of, of support, but also create specific metrics to measure our progress, you know, internally, and, and then finally incentivize people, whether it's around 
hiring, whether it's around representation in the actual content or the actual product, and say that you are going to be held to a certain standard. And we will work together if you don't hit that to rectify that. I think the second thing that comes to mind is, is paying with our dollars, right? Like we, you know, with consumer behavior, we've seen that there's, there's some things uh, that can be driven by, by more inclusive advertising, but also, you know, frankly, in this environment, especially from this economic environment, it's not everybody has the luxury to pay with it. But on the other hand, where we as professionals, especially can take action as, as B2B dollars, right? Like we can start to exert leverage there, do, do brands demand certain things from their agencies? Do agencies demand certain things from their publishers and platforms? You know, speaking with your dollars can potentially make a difference. I won't, I won't drop the, the F bomb or the the FB bomb there, but it's a. Well, it's here we are, I, you, you, Samir. You've literally <laughs> led to. us. You, you, you have led us to the middle of the desert. So here we are. All right, let's talk boycotts. Obviously, you know, the past three weeks have been a whirlwind for those of us that are close to how clients, marketers, and agencies ultimately invest dollars in social platforms. There's been, you know, a significant boycott uh, against Facebook. And, you know, frankly, in some cases, clients taking uh, action across the entire social platform side of things. What is your perspective? And what are you thinking about a morning brew around these issues? At first, I have to admit that I was a bit skeptical. You know, I was looking at the first statements coming out, and they were either from, you know, brands that that were among the most forward-looking and progressive and or they, you know, usually contained caveats. It's, oh, U.S. only or, or international or it's it's only this type of paid spend, but, you know, we didn't mention but it, that, that we're continuing with this other paid spend. And so, you know, of course, we've all seen the stats that of, oh, top 100 marketers have this X percent of the dollars in the, in yeah. the Facebook space. And, you know, so does this, does this make a difference? I think over the last 48 hours, for me personally, it seems like things have evolved a bit you know, more and more brands are having those conversations and putting actually action to the words. Of course, the big question to me is whether it's it's sustained. You know, yep. most of these are, are 30-day pauses, what it sounds like, maybe 60 days. Of course, some of those may or may not have to do with the fact that advertising budgets are, are, are under pressure anyways. And so here is a you know, in some minds, uh, the cynical way is it's a quick win to say we're supporting it here. But by the way, we were probably going to have to pull back anyways. Yep. You know, for us internally, it's funny as a, as a publisher, I can't remember, I think during the new fronts, there was someone, maybe it was Vice, who called out brands around block lists. And I know I recently saw an exclusion list that was seven, eight, nine pages long. And in my humble opinion, from my vantage point, you know, brands have drawn such red lines about where they're placing themselves in the context of what I would argue is pretty valuable content about important topics, but maybe have been pretty happy in the name of efficiency to risk it on social media platforms. And I think that's, you know, a big question that, that certainly from our standpoint uh, at Morning Brew that, that, you know, we're talking to our, our brands about uh, and our partners about brand safety and what does brand safety mean? Does it mean topical safety or does it mean that we address these topics? And by the way, our, our readers appreciate that and, and yep. create loyalty to us for that. Yeah, you know, I think that's a, an excellent point. I think it's an undersaid point at the moment, which is we live in a world in which news is ever more important, both from the people who consume it, but also as an, as an entity for advertisers and marketers, because it is, you know, we live in news world constant all the time, right? 
Yeah. I personally yearn for a day when we would not live in News World. Uh, no offense. <laughs> None taken. But we do. But the fact is we do. And it is, you know, among the most valuable properties, you know, regardless of whether it's TV or social or what have you, or, or you know, media organizations like yourself. So advertisers want the benefit of that because of the exposure. And yet we're still having these kind of crazy, I won't say hypocritical, but moderately hypocritical debates like, I'm going to participate in social media over here where there is some real stuff going on that is, you know, brand damaging to be close to. And yet I'm going to have a, you know, a seven page, 10 page outline on what my requirements are around excluded keywords and the like. And those things seem disconnected, don't they? Like it's sort of like turn a blind eye over here, but boy, I'm, you know, going to legislate uh, these issues. They do. They do. You know, if I put myself in the shoes of a, of a, of a marketer, I understand, right? Like there, is, there are certain benefits, uh, many benefits that, that have many. come from, from social media marketing. And I, this is not me saying that all of a sudden, you know, it, it's bad and we, you know, <laughs> brands need to shift and put all right. of your money into, into the news. And, and that's not, <laughs> well, if you do, you know who to call, but... <laughs> But, you know, I think... We only allow three or four plugs. Thank you. you. I've I've got at least three more. So I think I've only got one. So, you know, I'm happy to see that it's forcing the conversation. And I think that there is probably some of those conversations that, that, you know, we haven't had that that have been, you know, somewhere in our hearts and minds. And it's... uh, how kind of brands decide to take action is, is going to ultimately speak to to where the priority is, right? From a from both an efficiency and effectiveness standpoint, and then overall from a mix standpoint. But in the end, let's just look at Facebook in particular, and then we'll move off the the boycott topic. You know, in Facebook's case, it's really about the feed, right? The feed is the issue, and you know, right now there are few control mechanisms around the feed. And I understand why that is, right? And I understand the argument that this is, you know, for the people, driven by the people. But as a result, if you're an advertiser, that environment is tricky because it is not a situation unlike a YouTube where there were three years ago insufficient, but they've made a lot of progress on this since then. But there were at least structures around how that product worked from an advertiser perspective. Right now, that's not how the feed works. Now, other environments in the platform do, but that environment doesn't. Yeah, it's true. And I think there was a point in which, you know, Facebook has has obviously continued to tweak its algorithm of what shows up on the feed and and that balance between, let's call it professional content creators and how much that does or doesn't show up in the feed versus UGC for versus individuals and yep. and have continued to favor and I and I understand why individual content. And what that just means is you, you know, whereas in YouTube, you know, I was, I was part of the founding team at, at Vivo when I was in the music industry. And there was this whole thing of let's create a premium environment with premium content where, you know, it's really brand safe. And, and obviously, like you've mentioned, YouTube has taken steps, but it obviously prioritizes not necessarily in the feed, but, but where money gets made because money flows back to the creator. And, and in the case of, of Facebook, obviously not of, well, in, in watch, it's a little bit of a, of a different story, but but in the right. feed itself, the uh, the money isn't flowing back, and so there's no particular incentivization to to even have that content, and then therefore, hopefully, create a space that may be a little bit more safe. And that's the rub. And I'm sympathetic to the fact that that's that's a real challenge from a product perspective, but it's also you know if you're a marketer, that's where the value is. The value's in the feed. It is. So the thing that's most valuable is the thing that really has some issues that I think have to be addressed from a product perspective. I'm not bright enough to understand what those are, right? <laughs> I, 
I'm, I'm just a humble CMO. But, um, but, but, but I think, you know, from my perspective, that's the rub. The discussion on progress here, I think, is going to be increasingly focused on that point. Because some of these other things, I think they're going to be able to do some things to address, but that's the real trick of it, I think. Yeah, of course. That'll be the, that'll be the, the medium and long-term kind of question and conversation, as opposed to, like you said, some of the, some of the short-term steps that they, you know, they have taken or, or could possibly take. Yeah. And so it's yet to be seen. And, and, you know, just to be clear again, I don't think the answer is probably not in the future, just like no social media advertising. No. That's one of the things, you know, if I'm both sidesing here, <laughs> you know, my question for clients is, well, what is the criteria by which you're getting back on? Yeah. You know, because the likelihood that, you know, the vast majority of these issues are addressed by, you know, August 1st is unknown at best and low at worst. Yep. So in that case, what is the criteria and how are you going to make that decision? If you go back on, you face some of the same reputational PR issues that you face now if you, you know, don't choose to participate. And so I think, you know, some of those things clients are really in real time struggling with. And it's, you know, it's a real challenge for them to kind of manage those because there's no easy answer to getting back on either. There isn't. Yes, this is Samir nodding his head going, please, can we move <laughs> off this topic? All right, let's get back to what you do for a living. What role, if any, do media organizations such as yourself play in nudging clients and agencies along around some of these questions of inclusion and representation and equity? I think maybe the, the best way to frame this answer is, is around actually the name of this podcast, The Human Element, right? I think that we've gotten... Check is in the mail for that, Samir. Yeah, I, I said there are three or four more plugs. You just didn't know that that one of them was... was <laughs> Would be <for> mine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to be honest, I think, you know, listen, we've gotten drunk on the concept of full-blown al- algorithmic buying and selling and the efficiency, the valuable efficiency that comes with that. And there's value in the ecosystem. But with that you don't get to have the conversations and consideration around some of the topics that we're talking about right now uh, around race and equity and inclusion. And, you know, at The Brew, our brand partners get to have those conversations. And not only that, they're especially knowledgeable about them sitting in the context of a media organization who is addressing those topics head on. You know, they get to be a consultant, a partner, given kind of our relationship with our audience. They're you know, even at, at times they're working with brands on copy and content and interaction that's definitely value-add and, and sometimes even helping the brands to think about the actual messaging itself in the context of, of COVID, of, of Black Lives Matter, of, of recessions. And then ultimately, you know, we can continue to do a better job and media companies can as well to, to show them all of the data that shows that, you know, consumers appreciate brands who participate and show up in timely and relevant topics and, and in safe environments and don't ding them because of it. If anything, actually, there's not just a neutral effect, but there's, there's a positive effect. And so, you know, while we may not have the 1,000 data scientists that, that Facebook can, can activate uh, or a social platform can activate tomorrow, you know, we do have some of that data. And we, you know, if we have the chance to have the conversation, it's on us to make sure that we can show brands that it's not just about doing good, but you're actually going to see proper value add when you force yourself and take a step back to have a couple more conversations to, to ultimately make that connection. How have you changed your approach to content and what you guys make to broaden its reach and appeal to underserved communities? Yeah. 
That's a good question. I think, you know, I, I mentioned some of the more existential conversations that we've had around our mission and how we deliver it. We've also come to the realization that many of our readers read our content as a gauge for what's happening more generally, not just in business. And that was a certainly for me an interesting revelation and, and helped us really to define and understand kind of where we sit in the context of, of that question. But more importantly, day to day, you know, it's really about us making sure that we're asking ourselves uh, a few key questions as we're building the content. You know, number one is as we write a given piece of content or approach a topic, are we seeing if black people, other marginalized or underrepresented groups are experiencing the story in a completely different way? It's very easy to write the story from, from our own biases or from biases of, of the majority. You know, the second is as we do interviews, whether that's in, in the context of text content, uh, podcasts, et cetera, are we making sure to combat the biases of our own personal networks and societal structures to include black or marginalized voices? It's very easy, you know, for example, when, when you're living in the day-to-day news cycle, especially, and the way that content is turning is so quickly to, to rely on the networks that you've already built and the fact of the matter is that we have to recognize that those networks are not necessarily representative, especially if we're writing from the white cisgender male perspective at times. And then I think the third thing is, as we think about special features outside of you know, our day-to-day news cycle, are we doing enough to spotlight important issues around equity and justice as it relates to, to the Black community in, in both business and, and the wider world? You know, for us, we've had the opportunity to start investing in that content more and more as opposed to just our, our kind of 24-hour cycle. And we have to keep asking ourselves that question and making sure that, that we are writing that, including that, and, and not just falling back to what we know. So those are, those are a few of the big things. And then one small thing I'll note is, is uh, something that I was really proud of our team of a few weeks ago, which was that we, we made the shift to capitalizing the letter B in black. And, you know, I, I say small because I think that it's to the outside world or the general world, it may not seem like a, a huge deal, but to Black people, it very much is. We made that shift a week and a half or so before the AP style guide actually ended up <laughs> updating their own books. And I think that was... And the time, Times just did it, what, yesterday or the day before, right? Yeah, yeah, very they did it very, very recently. We had followed the style book pretty much to a T for, for a long time. And, and this was, you know, something that we obviously didn't know they were going to change it up and and... You know, we knew and, and we need to understand that, that Black people in America are a race and a culture and a group of people with a shared identity, not just a descriptor of, of skin mm-hmm. color. And, you know, doing that again, is, it's not some massive shift, but it's a, it's a start in small ways and then, and then in big to make sure that we're addressing these critical issues. What have you heard from your subscribers that has led you in any of these discussions? You know, generally we've heard messages of support. It's been heartening to see people of all races and backgrounds appreciate the fact that we've taken a stand and, and done our best to, to reflect that in our content. Of course, it's on us to sustain that. And, but, but we've also had subscribers that have questioned or challenged us as it relates to how we figure out our coverage. And you know, frankly, I, I came into a company that was so unique in that we've, from day one, invited that type of feedback into our inbox and frankly, engage in those conversations with a significant portion of the people who write in. And, and those particular ones have been really impactful. They've opened our eyes up to make sure that even if we had our own blinders, or on top of that, if we had certain intentions that it didn't actually come out 
and that we have to be more conscious about it. I'd be lying in saying that we also haven't gotten a lot of challenging messages back about our approach. And, you know, I'm proud of the stake that we've put in the ground. Of course, you know, we can still go further. But yeah, our team that engages in the inbox has been uh, exposed to some really rough messages. But then I, I took a step back a couple of days ago and, and looked, looked at some of those people in our little inbox and data pipeline and to see if, if some of them had unsubscribed uh, or if all of them had unsubscribed, as, as many of them threatened to do in sometimes more colorful language than that. <laughs> and, you know, while a few have, I, I was actually pretty, pretty heartened to see that many of them have stayed on and kept actually opening uh, our emails. And, and frankly, if we still have an invitation into their inboxes, it gives us the chance to expand the narrative for them. Yep. And that's, that's exciting. That is exciting. I mean, that's in a nation in particular and a world where it feels like division is winning. That's a sign that, I don't know, maybe I'm still listening. Even if I hated it, I'm, I'm still listening. I'm still listening. I think that's a, that's a great way to put it. And, and, you know, ultimately we're not in the, in the business of, of going and, and being someone's parent and telling them, you know, no, you are wrong. You need to do this. You need to do that. On the other hand, if we can empower them with the information and the narratives and they're open to receiving that, then, you know, I'm pretty certain that they'll be able to see it, see it for themselves without us having to, to scream it or, or other people have to scream it at the top of the roof. And so I appreciate that, that uh, people are still letting us into their inboxes. So last couple, I'm going to ask you one last sort of businessy one, and then we'll get into like broader yeah. <laughs> reasons for optimism or fear. Three months ago, if we had had you on the pod, I would have absolutely spent a chunk of time around this particular question. Given where we sit in the world today, it's, it's one that I, I want to make sure I ask you, but unfortunately, it's not as big a part of today's conversation. You know, as the content lead for the business, thinking about how to engage folks in what your product is in the most interesting way and looking for new ways to make products and services in places that attach customers and subscribers to you, where are the most exciting things in that? You mentioned, you know, audio a little bit. You know, is it is there a particular social platform that you think, you know, may finally be rounding a corner? Is there something in your day in, day out thinking about how to get your assets and create new innovative assets into the hands of your base that is most interesting? That's a good question. I think for us, the, the biggest thing has been just more content <laughs> and, and <laughs> just more. So Samir, your answer is just to like pound the rest of us with more stuff. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. In, in a world of so much, we just want to give you that much more, but, but, you know, in, in all honesty, you know, I think about like in uncertainty, in times of uncertainty, I think we have a responsibility, but also an opportunity to, to inform, to educate, to, to ground, to anchor people into the reality of what's going on. And so we've really tried to amp up the ways to, to say that, okay, you know, five years ago, we started as a newsletter company. Mm-hmm. One or two years ago, we, we became a, what I would call a newsletter plus company. We've mm-hmm. did a, you know, a couple things here and there. We, we launched new verticals, et cetera. Today, it's, it's really about the fact that we are a content company and we have newsletter first franchises. We have audio first franchises. But when you take that franchise-based approach, you also open yourself up to all of the different products that can fall into any given media franchise, right? And, and so whether that's 
realizing that there's a, a unique part of the TikTok ecosystem that's really interested in investing content. I had no idea, for example. So maybe uh, it's that. Or, TikTok or, will save us, Samir. TikTok's going <laughs> to save us all. In, in reality, it's right. It's, it's about acknowledging that there are so many different ways that we can, as we think about newsletter only to newsletter plus to like media franchise company, that we can decide what's the content, what's the message, and then what's the right medium to deliver that, whether it's long form content or an event or, you know, a community or a work from home guide or recommendations, et cetera. And so while I wouldn't say that we have a specific, you know, I'm not bullish on one platform or another place, we're just giving ourselves the permission to expand the definition of who we are. And I think that, you know, to, to the credit of Alex and Austin, our co-founders and, and, and our content team and, and really the wider team, we've established enough brand loyalty and trust over the past five years that our readers and, and users are willing to take a risk on us, if you can call it that, on, on other platforms or in other methods. And that's, that's really, really powerful. Yeah. You know, we, we have a lot coming at us here in the level of insanity and clutter and chatter and everything else as we head into this election in the U.S. is going to be unlike anything we've ever, ever seen. The entire world is going to participate in this election. Unfortunately, many in ways that we do not want. A lot of the country is going to participate in this election. We're going to have turnout in a, in a way we've never seen it, in my opinion. We're going to do it all against the backdrop of a once-in-a-hundred-year pandemic. How are you thinking about maintaining a connection to your audience, maintaining a way to break through, maintaining a way to keep that relationship amidst a backdrop of all of that? Do you, do you worry about that? I do and I don't. I think that it's whenever the world is rocked and then rocked a second time and, and rocked a third time and a fourth time, there, there definitely is a worry. There's even a worry for me from a, from a team perspective to make sure that we're supporting our team, the people who have to not just see what's happening in the world, experience it, read a ton about it, and then write about it, which is a, a pretty unique thing to, to have to do. But I think, you know, to, to me, it comes down to, to authenticity. You know, knowing who you are as a brand, as a company, making sure that the people that you have that are representing that brand, whether it's through the actual product creation itself, whether it's through the marketing of that, can authentically speak to your target audience and then letting it flow from there. And, you know, if we can continue, if we can do a good job and, and continue to do, frankly, a better job at making sure that we have the right people, you know, we have a, a brew tone and a, and a brew mission, but then they can take that and use their own authentic voices to deliver that. And I think in the end, maybe it's a bit corny to say that authenticity wins, but I, I actually think it does. And, and I've, you know, over the past few months, I've, I've definitely seen that through you know, the engagement with our content and with our, with our writers specifically, but also seeing that in, in other places. I don't know uh, if, if that's reflective of what you've seen as well. Yeah, look, I, I won't judge your, you know, the word corny. I, you know, the, here's, here's the problem with things that get labeled corny. The reason why they're called corny is because we keep coming back to them and we keep coming back to them because there's actually value in them. And that's, you know, we hate the unoriginality of it because when we say it out loud, it makes us go, oh, a lot of people have said this. And yet none of that changes the truth of it. And so for us, and then I'm going to join you here in, you know, the cornfield, our brand and our people are at their best when they're doing what it is that Cara does. And that is a deep curiosity, 
and commitment to human understanding. What makes people tick? What makes people interested in brands and media and the world? And that's where we're at our best. And our people feel that, right? It's like one of those things that is viscerally felt when you're doing your work and you say, ah, this is, this is where we should be. Call that corny, call that, you know, sentimental, all the things I get labeled all the time. It doesn't make it any less true. Not in my mind. I think it's a good point. Samir, last one, and you've been absolutely fantastic. I can't thank you enough for doing this. The last one for you is, amidst all of this, <laughs> what gives you the most reason for hope on any front, professionally, personally? We're just looking for a little bit of, little bit of uh, sunshine here as we leave the pod. I generally consider myself an optimistic person, but of course that, that optimism has been challenged a lot over the past few months. But I think the, the thing that gives me the hope is frankly the number of impactful conversations that I've had and that I've seen others have with friends and family and colleagues. You know, in some ways, I think because of COVID and, and staying at home, to me, it's, it's forced us to communicate more in general and also talk about things other than the weather, uh, the last game, what bar or restaurant, you know, we've tried out or are, are, are going to try out. You know, don't get me wrong. I, I can't wait for that to come back. But, but it's, it's created this space and, and maybe a forced space to have those conversations. And, and those conversations have been about really important and, and critical issues. And, you know, I've seen it even in my own Facebook feed, right? Like I, I grew up in a small town in Missouri and, you know, it's been heartening for me to see people who've stepped up to the plate um, as it relates to whether it's COVID and, and masks or, or, or Black Lives Matter advocacy in their feeds and, and the frank discussions that they've had with people um, in their community, which, you know, is is one that may not be the most obvious place that people are, are having these conversations. And so that does give me a lot of hope. You know, not every single one is starting or ending in the most ideal way, but the fact that we're having them, of course, it's important to sustain them, but the fact that we're having them has really given me a lot of hope. I have a little, you know, six-month-old baby who, who seems to act like he's two years old <laughs> at times. <laughs> but I, I, there's this feeling in my heart that he hears everything uh, uh, that he says. And even though he doesn't necessarily understand the exact words, having those conversations and making sure that he and, and people in the, the youngest generations, as well as the older ones, are, are hearing that every day and, and every week is going to help us to sustain some of the momentum that we've created over the past few months. We are going to leave it there. Thank you for that. Samir, you've been great. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we'd love to have you back. So we'll, we'll be in touch, we promise. Uh, that sounds great. That sounds awesome. great. Thanks for giving me that. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of The Human Element. Please remember that you can find us anywhere you find your pods. And if you are so motivated, give us a like or a comment or subscribe. We deeply appreciate your continued listenership. Remember, we will be back out to you next week. In the meantime, be well, be safe, and be just. Thanks so much.